Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for giving us the space to record this podcast as well as the equipment. If it weren't for them, we would just be in a room talking to ourselves, and I don't think anybody wants that. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and like and rate us on your favorite podcast app. We're on Google Play, iTunes, TuneIn, basically anything you can think of. And if you have feedback, be sure to send it to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on the podcast, we had longtime Democratic strategist and consultant Jerry Austin. So who is Jerry Austin? Jerry is a longtime player in Democratic politics and really nationwide when you think about it. I mean, he's been on a lot of campaigns from Jimmy Carter to Dick Celeste to Jesse Jackson to Paul Wellstone to Barack Obama. I mean, he's kind of a Forrest Gump of Ohio Democratic politics. Yeah, and he's he's on every level, too. I mean, he he ran a couple of mayor's races. He won one. He lost one. You know, he rubbed elbows with a bunch of kind of like— political types that you've heard of, you know what I mean? So he's just kind of like, I think the Forrest Gump uh, analogy is pretty good. He's definitely a wealth of knowledge, just knows so much because he's been so active for so long. I mean, he's got a book that he writes about. What's the title of the book? It is True Tales from the Campaign Trail, Stories Only Political Consultants Can Tell. Yeah, and in that, I mean, (laughs) some of the stories in there might even seem fanciful. Some of the stories he's going to tell on here are going to seem fanciful, frankly. Um, we've got a bonus pod coming a little bit later that's got some of those stories that we couldn't fit all into this because we ended up talking to him for close to 90 minutes. Yeah, and know? he's like, you want to talk more? And we're like, oh, yeah, man, like, yeah, right? you know, sure, we're like, we're the young guys, but I think we need a break. So. He, he is 100% that guy that you meet with, and, you know, he's telling stories. When he goes to the party, people listen to his stories. That's That's got to be the case, right? Yeah. So with that, let's listen to the interview that Andrew and I did with Jerry Austin. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. For those who don't know, the list of clients who you've worked for and is posted on your website reads kind of like a who's who of Democratic politicians. There's Jimmy Carter, there's Carol Mosley Braun, there's Gary Hart, Jesse Jackson, Paul Wellstone, Dick Celeste, and Barack Obama. Uh, You've been around Ohio politics for a few decades now, but you grew up in the Bronx, correct? Correct. What uh, what was life like kind of growing up in the Bronx? Well, this was uh, back in the the mid to late 40s and... uh and from then on, um, these, I grew up in, in the Bronx. You notice that it's called the Bronx. If you name the five boroughs of New York, the only one that has the in front of it is the Bronx. So I'm going to give you a little, a little trivia here. Why is it called the Bronx? Because in New Amsterdam times, the farm where all the, the food was grown was grown by a family named Bronxes. So people would say, we're going up to the Bronxes to get our food, so therefore it's the Bronx. The other piece of trivia is that the Bronx is the only borough of New York that's on the mainland of the United States. The other four boroughs are islands. So we're very proud you know, of those of us who come from the Bronx. But I come from the South Bronx, uh, which is uh, uh, a very, uh, you know, uh, today, an, an area that uh, leaves a lot to be desired in terms of uh, uh, attention and to the kinds of needs there. But when I grew up, it was a neighborhood that was one-third black, one-third Puerto Rican, and one-third white. And one-third white was one-third Irish, one-third Jewish, and one-third Italian. Uh, I, I'm fond of saying that I didn't know that whites were the majority until I was 13. Um, but I grew up in a family that our politics were not Democrat or Republican. Our politics were union. My, both of my parents were very active uh, in 
in unions. My mother actually worked for a union uh, called 1199, which became 1199 SEIU. Uh, but whatever was going on with the union was our politics. We, we were on the march on Washington in 63 uh, because the union was there. We were on actually a march on Washington in 57 and 58 when there weren't 250,000 people. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of growing up with those kinds of issues, um, uh, you know, was part of my, my my makeup. But I never thought that uh, I'd ever become a political consultant. I mean, nobody in those days grew up and say, when I grow up, I want to be a political consultant. When I went to, to college, um, I got my first day in history and my first day in phys- uh, physical uh, education and I thought I should be a history of physical education major because I got A's in both of them. But they weren't offering that at the time. So I was a history major uh, and wound up uh, coming to Ohio in 1967 as part of a program called the National Teacher Corps, which um, there was a, a shortage of teachers. And so a program run at the University of Akron provided uh, a master's degree in education while you taught uh, in inner city junior high school, and I wound up at a, a place called Addison Junior High School, which was on 79th and Huff, which is not there anymore. And, you know, continued my being involved in politics by volunteering on campaigns or protesting a war or anything like that. And uh, So that was an interesting time to be in Cleveland and, and Huff, too, right? Well, I never thought that I'd stay here. I mean, I, I, as soon as my program was over, two years was over, uh, I packed the car and went back back east and to make my, my fame and fortune in New York. And then I realized that there was a whole world out there west of the George Washington Bridge and uh, that in New York, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, too competitive. And I sort of liked what I found out in the Midwest. I came back and got, you know, a job uh, and volunteered in a, for a guy running for state rep named Dick Celeste in 1970. And it was my first real uh, real involvement in, in a campaign as a volunteer uh, because I had been on the protest line. I had been, you know, demonstrating. I'd been, you know, gassed at the Pentagon, uh, the whole nine yards. And so the day before that primary in 1970, in May, was Kent State. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? I mean, I'm, 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 I got off the protest line. Four kids are being killed at Kent State, which is 40 miles away from where I was. And it was very depressing. And... Uh, Anyway, Dick Celeste won that state rep race, and I was a volunteer, um, and he ran again in 72, uh, and I was a campaign manager as a volunteer. And in 74, he decided to run for lieutenant governor and said, um, I want you to quit your job and, and run my campaign in Northeast Ohio, and I'll pay you $5,000. And I thought, wow, okay. I thought he meant 5000 a month. He meant $5,000 for the whole year. <laughs> and so I, of course, quit my job, sold my second car, and wound up running his campaign for lieutenant governor up here. Uh, and we won in 74, while the, it was the last time that the governors and lieutenant governors ran separately. Uh, so Dick Celeste won the governorship, but Jim Rhodes uh, won the lieutenant governorship, and Jim Rhodes ran the governorship. So we went down to Columbus. I became chief of staff in the lieutenant governor's office. It's a great title, but, you know, chief of staff of four people uh, in an office that the only responsibility of the lieutenant governor at that time was, A, make sure the guy across the hall is still breathing, B, uh, preside over the Ohio Senate where you, he only voted in case of a tie, and C, and most importantly, he was the commander-in-chief of the Ohio Navy, which did not exist. Um, and so, you know, being being in Columbus and, uh, and, and being the chief of staff, 
for a lieutenant governor, you know, basically meant we we basically worked on Dick Celeste running for governor in, in 1978, and and. Uh, um, and from there led to a, you know, a whole uh, political career of uh, being a consultant. I guess, you know, Seth and I weren't alive then. Um, and, you know, for somebody of our age, it's almost exotic to think of there being a two-term Democratic governor. To, just so for people who weren't around or even those who were, what was Dick Celeste like? What attracted you to him? And, and what was it that helped him uh, reach the level of success that he had? Well, um, that's, a, that's a really good question because um, you ever meet somebody in your life um, not necessarily in, in politics, just meet somebody and say, I don't know what this guy's going to be when he grows up, but it, he's going to be special. And I met Dick Celeste in 1968, and th- that was one of those moments where he said, and it had to do with politics, and just meet this guy, and, you know, tall, good-looking, articulate. Uh, and that was not a discussion about politics. He'd run for office someday. So when I met him, I thought this guy was special. Um, and he had this love of campaigning. And people would always wonder, you know, you're a state rep from Lakewood. What are you doing on the east side of Cleveland? I mean, why are you going to these events around the county? Well, for two reasons. First of all, he loved going to these events. And secondly, he'd run for some other office down the, down the road, you know, so you start laying the groundwork for that. Uh, and we learned, you know, politics together. He is a candidate and, and me as, as, as a campaign manager and operative. And the, the time I spent with him in Cuyahoga County— uh, was invaluable because when we ran statewide for governor in 1982, he ran in 78 and lost. Uh, every race he's ever won, I did. I didn't do that one. Um, and when he ran in 82 in a primary that involved Bill Brown, who was a, a three-term attorney general, and Jerry Springer, who was mayor of Cincinnati, um, I ran a campaign up here. I ran Cuyahoga County. Um, and I ran the whole state, but, but particularly Cuyahoga County. And I came up with this crazy idea that, that we would run Dick Celeste as a governor from Cleveland. And I rolled the dice, and so did he, uh, by believing that our opponents wouldn't be smart enough to run a spot around the state saying, Dick Celeste wants to be governor from Cleveland. We want to be governor for the state of Ohio. They never did it. I actually had a banner right, right across the street here on, on Euclid Avenue, um, from the arcade across uh, Euclid Avenue, it said, uh, elect the governor from Cleveland, Dick Celeste. Was, uh, and so when the, the primary was over and the votes were counted, he won 87 counties. 87 counties, if you counted the vote, he was 1,000 votes ahead of Bill Brown. And you threw in the 88th county, he won by 53,000 votes. So your plan is to kind of run up the score here, basically, then. Yeah, so, you know, we took advantage of where our strength was. We played it. Um, he was very popular here, and uh, and we won the primary and then, and then won the general election. But the point about you know, the original question about Dick is that you met him, you remembered him. You know, he was, always looked you in the eye. He had incredible uh, ability to remember people's names. Even years later, he'd remember people's names. And he was a, he taught me, and I guess we taught each other, which led to you know, this book that I have out now, um, that politics about stories. Uh, if, if, I, if you're a candidate and I want you to hire me, I'm going to tell you my story. Here's why you should hire me. If you do hire me, my job is to tell your story to people, whatever area or district we're running in, so they can vote for you. And Dick had this incredible ability to tell stories. And, and so when he, would, uh, when he would go speak in, you know, Coshocton County, he tells some story that was relevant to a rural area. I mean, for instance, um, 
he'd say, you know, on my way over here, uh, I came to a fork in the road. And one sign said 12 miles to Coshocton on the left, and then the sign on the right said 12 miles to Coshocton on the right. Well, I didn't know which road to take, so I saw a farmer, you know, who's out there plowing the back 40, and I went over and called to him. He came over, and I said, excuse me, does it make any difference which road I take to Coshocton? And the farmer said, not to me, it doesn't. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he would say that whatever county he went to in terms of, you know, I came to this county, that county. But, but he had this great ability to, to, to talk to people and make them feel like they knew him. And that's because when he was a state rep, as you know, you go down to Columbus usually from Tuesday through Thursday. Well, on Tuesday night and Wednesday night, he'd go out to a different JJ dinner around the state, come back to Columbus, uh, and on his way back to Cleveland on Thursday, he'd stop someplace. So he was always campaigning, and his his colleagues uh, in the legislature at that time, most of whom were World War II and Korean War veterans who came from you know smaller counties around the state, they wanted to bring this Rhodes Scholar, you know, to, to their county uh, to show they didn't have warts and everything, and to even to show they can get somebody like that there. So he made you know these friends um, all over the place, and uh, and people would come to see him because he was entertaining and he was articulate, and uh, and they got to meet somebody that you know eventually became the governor of Ohio. Yeah, there's no term limits then, so there being a relatively young member of the legislature is kind of exotic, I imagine, huh? Well, he only, he only, you know, he only stayed for two terms before he ran for lieutenant governor, and when he ran for lieutenant governor, he was in a nine-person primary, uh, including some guy named Bill O'Neill, who's now running for governor uh, today. We talked to Bill on the show, actually. So. And, and, and Dick won that primary with 32% of the vote in a nine-way race um, and became the running mate of... of of uh, Governor Gilligan running for election, except they ran separately, and Dick won by two hundred fifty thousand votes, and Gilligan lost by eleven thousand votes. Um, but the 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 beauty of of campaigns those days uh, is that you actually talk to people on the phone as opposed to twittering. Uh, you actually knocked on doors. Uh, I don't know if you how familiar you are with the streets in Lakewood. But uh, uh, streets between Clifton Avenue and Detroit Road are the longest streets probably in the whole county. And walking up and down those streets, knocking on doors, could take you four hours to do one street. But we did them. And we, our number one volunteer in terms of a type was a 14-year-old junior high school kid who would actually knock on the door uh, and say, I'm here for, for Mr. Celeste. He's running for state rep. Would you take some time and read this brochure about him and consider voting for him? And it blew people away because, you know, most of the time you just drop a piece of literature, don't say anything. So the, the, the folks that were involved with Dick in those early times went on, you know, careers doing different things. But they always remember the kinds of campaigns that he ran because at the end of the day, he'd come back to the office. He'd have coffee and, you know, talk and tell people, you know, what he, what he um, experienced. And, and campaigns were, you know, were community. It was part of your life. We went to the, to the you know, Lake, Lake, uh, the, the St. Ed's. Uh, dinner dance because we liked it, not only because it was in the community. We, we went to the, Sh- to the Shaker Heights, this, or the beach with that, or, or the Independence, this, because they were events that we liked going to. And politics was a lot different, and it was very m- much more communal uh, than it is right now. And, you know, the attendance was much better, much better also. It's just a different time. So something that struck me when I was reading your book, which I will plug briefly, um, it's uh, True Tales from the Campaign Trail, Stories Only Political Consultants Can Tell. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned in there was that around the t- same time that Dick Celeste, the young 
governor, Rhodes Scholar. There's another young Rhodes Scholar governor out there kind of floating around too. And obviously their uh, trajectories ended up different. So why do you see from your point of view that Bill Clinton ended up being what he was and Dick Celeste kind of fell off the national map a little bit? Well, I I think that, you know, uh, timing is everything. And um, Dick Celeste, actually, we we took a look at running for president in 1988. Uh, He had been reelected in 86 and would be serving until 90. And we took a look at it. It just wasn't there. Um, he called up Bill Clinton and said, you need to run for, for president. And this was 88. And Clinton said, no, 88's not my year. 92's my year. And um, and so timing is you know, is really important. So you'd think 88 would be a, you know just the two terms of Republicans. On, you'd think that might be a good opportunity, you know, so... Well, around, uh, uh, well, actually, um, if you remember, it was really three terms. Um, because yeah, right. But, 92. I'm, but I'm saying in '88, yeah, somebody but, looking but, but at that it, was our know. whole reasoning. Right. But the, but the, but I think if if he had not been governor, uh, you know, if he if he remember he ran in '78 and he lost. Now, if he would have won and served two terms in '88, he would not have been in office, and, and maybe it was uh, more of an opportunity to run around the country and put together what needs to be done. But it, it just it just wasn't there. You know, and you know, it's, those things happen, and and for Clinton's purposes, um, you know, his timing was 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 much better. After now three terms of Republicans, um, uh, he was able to win. So why didn't Celeste run for president in '88? What was the what was wrong with the timing? Well, a, a lot of things were wrong with the timing. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, this is 2018. There are people already doing forays into Iowa for 2020. We weren't doing that in 1986 or 87, and so the, 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 by the time I decided to take a look at this, it was I think late 87. We went to Iowa. We you know we spent three or four days staying in people's homes and all that type of stuff. But the kind of uh, infrastructure you need to put together, especially the money part of it, uh, just just wasn't there. Uh, and you know he could have run and 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 done terribly at that time. Dukakis was you know out and uh, and running around. Uh, Jackson was, uh, I don't even know if he was thinking about it then. But the interesting thing is that I always thought that I'd be running a campaign for president in 1988 for Dick Celeste. I wound up running a campaign for president for Jesse Jackson. So how did that come to, uh, how did that come about? I got a phone call in 1987 from a friend of mine in California. He said, would you like to run Jesse Jackson's campaign for president? I said, no. He said, why not? I said, because, you know, he ran in 84 as a joke. I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in being involved with something that's not serious. And he said, well, would, would you come to California and meet with Willie Brown, who was then the Speaker of the House, because he's agreed to be Jackson's campaign chair, but only if Jackson will hire a real serious campaign manager, and uh, we want you to interview with Willie. I said, look, I'm not interested in being the campaign manager, but I'm interested in meeting Willie Brown. So I go out to California to meet Willie Brown, and uh, I don't know how much you know about Willie Brown, but but one of the things about him was that he was he was this incredibly uh, impeccable dresser. Um, and I'm waiting for him in his, his San Francisco office. He comes out in a white pinstripe suit, green pinstripes, with uh, white and green patent leather shoes, and a a green tie on a white uh, you know, this white shirt. And he says, "Come on, let's go." get something to eat, and we'll talk. So we go outside his office, and uh, he says, here's my car, and it's parked in front of a, a fire hydrant. And I said, Mr. Speaker, you know, you're parked in front of a fire hydrant. Said, yeah, yeah, that's my parking space. And, okay. 
And the car it's, it's good to be was, king, I guess. was uh, this is 1987, <laughs> was a Cadillac Alante, which was the only time Cadillac made a sports car. And uh, I said, well, Mr. Speaker, it's a, it's a beautiful car. He said, yeah, it's a state car. I said, a state car? He said, he said yeah, well, you know, legislators in California get cards. And, you know, they, that's part of the deal. And it's an American car. I'm a speaker. So I got a Cadillac Alante. So we went off and had this fabulous meeting. Uh, and, and he said, I, I want you to do this campaign. He said, you're the, you're the, you're the right person to do this campaign. Um, and I said, well, I'm not the first person you've interviewed. He said, no, no, you're probably about 18th, and nobody wanted to do it. I said, well, I don't really want to do it either. He said, well, go down to, Cal- to L.A. and meet with Maxine, Water, uh, Maxine Waters. And Maxine Waters was an assemblywoman at the time. Well, somebody else I enjoyed meeting, so I go down and meet with Maxine. And um, Maxine's one of these people that uh, whatever side she's on, you want to be on her side. Because if you're not on her side, she can cut your balls off. I mean, she's, you know, credible. So I, I meet with her. I like her. She likes me. Uh, go to Chicago and meet with the people in Chicago. I go and meet with the people in Chicago, and they offer me the job. And I said, don't you think we're missing something here? I said, well, what are we missing? I said, don't you think I ought to meet with the candidate? I mean, you're going to hire me without my ever meeting the candidate? I said, oh, that's a great idea. So I go to New York. And I meet Jesse Jackson uh, in a hotel lobby. He says, come on, get in the car. Uh, I got to go down to Wall Street and make a speech. Come with me. So I go down with him to Wall Street. And you know, I, you know, I knew about Jesse Jackson like anybody else did, what I read about and saw on, on TV. And I watched him speak to um, McDonald Company executives on Wall Street. And it blew me away because he was a lot smarter than I thought he was. And uh, you know, his knowledge of economic... Um, uh, trends and economic philosophy, uh, you know, um, was was impressive. And then he and I had a had a conversation, and uh, and he and he asked me, you know, do you think I could win? And I said, what's your definition of winning? And he said, be kind of nominee of Democratic Party. I said, no. Uh, then why would you take this job on? I said, because I think it's important that 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 you run because you'll get people involved in the. In, in, the, in, the, in the primary and get people involved in the campaign uh, that normally wouldn't be involved, and I want to be involved in, in doing that. And so I signed on, and uh, he said to me, um, well, what, do you, what do you want you know, besides the salary? And I said, I want the checkbook. He started laughing, and he said, you want the checkbook? You have the checkbook. You know, we're $600,000 in debt. And I said, yeah, but you don't realize that on January 1 of the, of the uh, year that you know, that the, the, we're contesting this race, 1988, you qualify for matching funds and you'll qualify for over $1 million. He said, how do you know that? I said, that's why you're hiring me, because I know things like that. So I went and took over the campaign in Chicago and um, inherited uh, a staff and inherited uh, uh, a list of 50 state coordinators, all of whom were African-American ministers left over from 1978, 1988, I'm sorry, 1984. And I got rid of almost all of them and then went around to, to find my own state coordinators and put together a campaign that had to show the media, because the first primary was not in Iowa. Um, the, the first you know, contested event was getting the media to basically say this guy's viable. And because they had to compare his race of 88 to 84, among the things to show viability was a candidate that actually showed up on time. Uh, so getting a plane uh, to to get him to places was a priority, and 
raising the money to do that was a priority. Um, second was to be on TV because he never was on TV in 1984. So to get him on TV with a spot was a, was a sense of, uh, of showing uh, viability. Uh, and we also had the benefit of having run in 84. So in Iowa in 1984, he got 1% in the, in the caucuses. And in 88, we got 10%. So we got a 1,000% you know, increase that we talked about. We went to New Hampshire. We got 4% in 84. We got 8% in 88, 100% increase. Uh, and so we were able to use that comparison uh, while, while going through places we weren't going to do well to get to places that we were going to do well because of the African-American vote in those places. And with four or five candidates in the race, uh, we concentrated uh, not on states, but on 83 congressional districts, which um, we targeted that had enough of an African-American population for us to win uh, the majority of those delegates, if not all of those delegates. Uh, and that's how we campaigned. Um, and we, you know, we were successful. So I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit, but in 1988, you also helped run uh, Cleveland mayor's campaign, right? Was that the same year? Am I no, getting my 89. years wrong? 89. So uh, in 89, uh, you were running George Forbes's campaign and a guy named David Axelrod was running uh, Mike White's campaign. Um, and then just in, the, in your book, you talk about running into Axelrod in a few different places. Uh, you ran into D.D. Meyer. Dick Morris kind of came calling when you were in the lieutenant governor's office, if I'm not mistaken. So you're running these people who are kind of like household names almost to uh, political observers now. You know, Axelrod is on TV. He's got a podcast. So what's the difference between somebody like you who's had a successful career in politics versus somebody like Axelrod who's almost like a celebrity? You know, what's the how, well, how do you David, get to David, one versus David's the other? David's a celebrity because he helped elect the president. Uh, if he hadn't elected a president, David Axelrod would have been a consultant in, you know, in, in Illinois, like I had been in Ohio, and he wouldn't have, uh, you know, the kind of success he's had today. No one would, be, would care about a book that he wrote uh, because you like the president. That's the difference. Uh, and, uh, you know, and David, to his credit, you know, found some, some guy running for state senate uh, who wound up becoming president of the United States. It's a credible story. Um, and, you know, and, and that's why. I mean, you know, if Dick Celeste would have become president at some time, you know, maybe I, w I would have had a different career, although I never was much interested in going to Washington anyway. And, and uh, I never, you know, saw myself uh, in terms of government because I enjoyed uh, the, the, the fray of campaigns. I mean, I'm a frustrated athlete. Um, I played you know, basketball in college at a very low level. And uh, during the time I played, we won three and lost 37 um, but you won three. That's the important part, right? Well, but every time <laughs> that, that game started, we could win. Uh, but you got a report card. And so with politics, what happened was it, it, it fulfilled the com competition I, I needed in my life. You have a campaign. Uh, it ends on election day. You get a report card. You win or you lose. You do offenses and defenses. You do scouting, polling. Uh, and if you win a lot, people hire you. If you lose a lot, they don't. Uh, but one thing that's constant, at least in, back, in the, back in the old days, is when the election was over, you're unemployed. Uh, you know, no one's hiring you in, after the election for the next election, especially if you're going into an odd number year. Um, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed the competition of, of, of campaigns. There's nothing better on election night than winning and nothing worse than losing. And those people who really appreciate winning, of course, have lost from time to time. 
So a story in your book that I thought was interesting was you described the small dollar donations you received while you were on the Jackson campaign, and you actually were physically counting the money. And but you eventually received three million dollars in cash on that campaign. Did you did you count all of that? Well, I I, I didn't I didn't physically count all of it, but the beginning when it started, I did um, because I was on the road. And what would happen is you, you go into a and I think one of the stories I, I tell is in Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, which is, uh, you know, in the heart of the Delta. And here we are coming in uh, to Meridian to have an event at a, at a, at a, a black church. And uh, we're an hour late, terrible weather. But there are 120 people there, you know, who are coming to see Jesse Jackson, never thinking that Jesse Jackson would be in Meridian, Mississippi, of all places. And he'd get up and he'd do his spiel about why he was running and all that. And then he'd do his, you know, his call for donations. And he'd start off by saying, uh, who'll give me $1,000? And everybody's looking around thinking, there, there's not $1,000 in this church combined. Who'll give me 500 Who'll give me 50 And well, finally, he'd say, who'll give me something? Everybody raised their hand. And we passed the, uh, the basket, and people would put in dollar bills. Once in a while, you see a five. And when it was over, the event was over, I got the money and uh, counted it and uh, got it to FedEx uh, which you're not supposed to send money by, via FedEx, but I had to get it out of town. Why? Because the local people wanted the money, and they, you know, their 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 attitude was, hey, we, you know, this is our money. You should stay here to help us run the campaign. And uh, and what I was trying to explain to them, which I stopped because I couldn't win the argument, was I need this money to fuel this plane out here to get to the next state. Just like in the civil rights days, we passed the hat to raise money to put gas in the car to get to the next county. And so that's what happened, and it eventually, uh, you know, led to raising th- that amount of money because we raise cash all the time. And um, if I could have gotten the names of every person who gave me money, names and address, uh, you know, maybe I could have get it, got to get matched. But cash was not matchable, um, and so it was, you know, it was, it was about three million dollars uh, in cash, which we needed. get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table. And they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. So Jerry Austin has done a lot of ads for a lot of different people, right? Yeah, in keeping with the uh, sort of pop culture references, we call them the the Don Draper of Ohio politics as well. 
Yeah, he's one of those kind of old school guys where uh, he told us a story about he wanted to do an ad in a certain thing. His gut told him that this is something that's going to connect with people. The pollster called him. He told the pollster to do something impolite, went on with the ad. And, uh, you know, so he is big on the idea that doing an ad is a way to kind of almost like get into someone's mind space. He, he compared, you know, he said, yeah, I did a lot of focus groups, but, you know, focus group to me is like getting a shot in a beer with someone. So he's just, again, like very old school in his outlook. And clearly, you know, he, he had a lot of success with, with that approach. It was a lot of fun to dissect. You know, we, we see a lot of ads just in our job and the public sees a lot of ads. And it was really interesting to talk with him about kind of the the sort of genesis of it and where it comes from and how you make it effective and how you make it resonate. And if you have one that doesn't work, you throw it to the side and you think of something else that's going to resonate, which, I mean, he did for the better part of, what, 40 years. With that, let's listen to more of the interview with Jerry Austin. The New York Times quoted you as saying, The closest thing a male can come to childbirth is a TV or radio spot. You conceive it, nurture it, and give birth on TV. It's a great feeling seeing something you've created on New York TV. Have political campaigns adapted well to the internet? You know, TV used to reign supreme, and now we kind of see the internet, you know, being the stronger of the two. Well, the the the, the problem with my answering that question is that I am not social media savvy. Uh, I mean, um, and so I don't even think I've ever done an, an ad that's that's been on on Facebook or anything like that. I'm you know I'm I'm. Uh, you know, uh, too old for that type of stuff. And I know, I know I'm retired now, so I don't do that anymore. But what, what, what's happened now is that communication is instantaneous. Um, in my day, you know, you went and shot a spot, you had to get the film developed. You know, it could take two or three days before you actually got it on the air. Now you get on the air in, in, in no time. Uh, and, you know, you have, you have kids um, who understand how to use their computer to do a spot on the computer, get it on Facebook. You can buy Facebook ads. You can target on Facebook. It's a lot cheaper uh, than TV. I, I don't, I don't know that we're that far away from never having buy, to buy TV spots again, and everything will be on the internet. Uh, and and the internet is not is not um, you know um, thirty second oriented. Now you know it's, it's within reason. You're not going to put on a four minute five minute spot, but. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's what's there right now and it seems to be working and, you know, where, where do you go anymore where you can hear people actually talk to each other? I mean, if you would have went to Hillary Clinton's Brooklyn campaign office in 16 and walked in in there, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody's, you know, doing this, uh, and, uh, and texting and, and, um, so it's a different, it's different world and it, it's one that, you know, it's, it's, it's past my ability to, to really comprehend uh, because I don't do it anymore. But in my day, the excitement was that you came up with an idea. And whether that idea came from reading polls or came out from your gut, and, and you, 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 know, you wrote a spot, you had the spot produced, and you put it on the air and you watched what it did. And that's why I, I said that it's the closest thing to a male can come you know, to childbirth because you conceive, uh, you, know, you create, conceive, and watch what it, what it does. And um, and I've had a lot of, lot of experiences with, uh, with you know, my gut being successful in, uh, in producing those kinds of ads. Do you have a TV spot that you would kind of consider your magnum opus? Well, you know, uh, I think the best TV spots and political TV spots are the ones that don't win awards, but they win elections. 
Uh, and many of these awards are given out for, you know, reasons. It's a beautiful spot, and the photography is beautiful, and the music is beautiful and all that. Uh, and, and some of them do win elections. But, uh, I, I, you know, my forte, I think, was that I had a real good gut about, about issues. Um, and that's because, you know, I, I come from a working-class background, and I, when I came to Ohio, especially to the Cleveland area, uh, I did a lot of focus groups, at least I call it that now. I spent time at working-class bars, and I talked to people, and that was my focus group. I didn't call it that at the time. I just call it having a shot in beer with, you know, with, with guys in a bar and listening to what they had to say. But I'll give you one example. Um, in 1982, Dick Sless is running a primary for governor, and one of his opponents is Bill Brown, who's the attorney general. And he had a, uh, a D.C. consultant named Bob Squire, uh, uh, who did his media, and Dick Celeste was against the death penalty. And uh, Bill Brown, through his media consultant, put a spot on the air that said that Dick Celeste was soft on crime because he was against the death penalty. And Dick wanted to go on the air and say, okay, I want to tell people why I'm against the death penalty. He said, no, we're not doing that. Um, and uh, he said, what are we doing? I said, well, you're going to go on the air and you can talk about something positive. Well, what's that? I said, you're for mandatory sentencing of criminals. He said... Oh, that makes sense. And so I write this spot, and we're filming it in his backyard. And he's got, you know, five kids, and they're all around, you know, the picnic table in the back. And he's got his youngest kid on his lap, and he's looking at the camera. He's talking about why he's for mandatory sentencing of criminals. And all of a sudden, the back door opens up, and somebody yells out, Jerry, uh, stop, stop filming. Peter Hart, who's our poster, is on the phone. He needs to talk to you. He says, stop what you're doing. You know, he needs to talk to you. So I stop, I walk in, I pick up the phone, I said, what is it, Peter? He said, don't do that spot. It's the wrong spot. And I said, f*** you, and hung up the phone. I went back and did the spot and took away took away that, that issue. As a matter of fact, the next poll that Peter Hart did, Dick Celeste was the crime fighter. Uh, but what, what existed there was not only my gut, but I had a person, Dick Celeste, who I had been involved with for 12 years, who we trusted each other. And, and that's why when I said, and we're not doing why I'm against the death penalty, it's why I'm for mandatory sentencing criminals. And, and I also gave him a closing line, which I got from a New York City cab driver, which was, if you don't punish the guilty, you wind up punishing the innocent. And, you know, the 1982 Celeste campaign for governor was called by Time magazine perfect. Uh, and it was in, in almost every way. But the, but, the, but the reason that we were successful is it was a person running who had a person working with him who he knew. In 78, when Dick ran and lost, he hired a guy named David Garth to do his campaign. He was a New York uh, consultant, very, very, very famous, very successful. Dick Celeste met him the day he signed him. He never saw him again. He got some tertiary guy that you know, was his you know, campaign consultant. So, uh, as I said, I was going through the archives, and uh, you seem to relish kind of the attack and the counterattack that used to be involved in politics. Uh, is that true? Well, I, I don't, you know, I never looked at it as attack and, and, and counterattack. I, I think, it, you know, if a person that is the opponent is a incumbent, their record is what the issue is. You're running because you don't like what they've done, and here's what I'm going to do. So... You know, attacking them was the word used about their record, you know, is an easier thing to say than basically telling people what their record is. But, uh, you know, we used to call it going for the jugular. Um, and 
But but the 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 challenge was how do you do in thirty seconds on TV or sixty seconds on radio um, to get people to understand what the issue is, um, why that person was wrong in the issue, what your person's going to do, uh, and and then get them to do the one thing that this is all about, which is to vote. And so I like the, the, the those kinds of of ads uh, because I'm always trying to find what is it that resonates with people. I mean, there are a lot of other things that a, a candidate could have voted on or done that nobody cares about. So what are the things that really, really resonate w- w- with people? And it's usually an issue that, that involves their, their lives. It could be about jobs. I mean, for instance, Mike DeWine was a, uh, a U.S. senator um, and running for re-election challenged by a guy named Sherrod Brown. Um, and one of the uh, 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 pieces of, of that campaign was a direct mail piece against Mike DeWine, which showed uh, a person from Mexico, Japan, Korea, India, I don't know if there's any other place, uh, their picture, and in their own language, translated, it said, uh, thanks, Mike DeWine, for sending Ohio jobs to India, saying Ohio jobs here. Well, you look for that, that kind of thing, and then and this is all about what we call the science and the art of, of campaigns. The science is... What is that issue that will resonate with someone to get them to vote for your candidate? The art is, what is the vehicle you use, radio, TV, direct mail, maybe all of the, of the above, and how do you frame it uh, in order to get that person to do that one thing, which is to vote for your candidate? So it seems like you mentioned you know, the anecdote about the ad down in Chile, that it's just something that has to be memorable in order to kind of stick with somebody on top of their having like uh, resonating with them emotionally, right? Well, the, 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 thing, the thing about it is that, you know, when, when you buy TV time, you buy a lot of it. Why do you buy a lot of it? Because we found that it takes a, a viewer almost three times to see an entire commercial. And rarely do they see the full 30 seconds. They may come on different parts of it. So, but even if they did, you want to keep, you know, driving it home and driving it home. But if you don't have that responsive cord, you know, which which is which is what it's called, to get that person to say, "Wait a second, you just you just made contact with me on on, on this kind of an issue," uh, that you know it, it doesn't matter. Um, and the other part of it, which is important to understand, is that campaigns are also defined by how much money you have to communicate. So, I've been in campaigns. Carol Mosley Braun campaign is a good example. Um, there were three people in that race in that primary. Incumbent uh, named Alan Dixon, who had never been beaten um, in any of his races in Illinois, running for his third term for the yeah, U.S. Senate. Yeah, and just to cut in, this is the 1992 Senate 1992 race in Illinois. 1992 Senate yeah. race in Illinois. Um, and and a, guy, a guy named um, Alan Hofeld, who was a millionaire lawyer. And these two guys were on the air um, spending millions of dollars um, beating each other up uh, in in November, December, January of of, of ninety one going to ninety two because as you know Illinois has an early primary and uh, Carol Mosley Braun had called me up I knew her from the Jackson campaign and says I want you to come and and uh, and help me in this campaign I said well, why why are you running I mean uh, Alan Dixon's like unbeatable and she said well uh, I'm running for two reasons one Alan Dixon voted in the Senate against Judge Bork to be go to the Supreme Court, but voted for Clarence Thomas. Now, you could, I can see voting 
you know, for both of them or against both of them, but how can you vote against Bork and vote for Thomas? Reason is that he cut a deal with the Republicans, that if he voted for Clarence Thomas, they would give him a weak opposition. Well, a lot of, a lot of women's groups got very mad about that and implored Carol to run and asked me what I thought. And I said, well, this, this is, you know, uh, probably not a winning campaign, but why, why would you do this? He says, well, I want to get my name out there because I may want to run for mayor of Chicago at some point. Well, all of a sudden, a third person got in the race, this guy Hofeld, whose consultant was a guy named David Axelrod. And so she called me up and said, well, there's a third person in the race. So well, now you can win. She said, what do you mean I can win? Said, do the math. You know, you don't need 50% plus one. You, you know, you need over one third of the vote to win. So what happened was these two guys beat each other up. We had no money. Uh, you know, it wasn't a question of, look, I got to decide this and that wound up that with about six days to go, I had $300,000 that we saved. And I, I went and I did a spot that cost $1,001 to produce uh, with a voiceover and a picture of Alan Dixon comes up, black and white picture. It says, Alan Dixon, the incumbent, thinks he owns the seat. Picture of Al Holfeld comes up, black and white picture. Uh, Al Holfeld, millionaire lawyer, wants to buy the seat. Picture of Carol Mosley Braun comes up in color. Carol Mosley Braun, da 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 Put it on the air. Spend all the money on Chicago TV. And um, the Thursday before the election, both newspapers in Chicago have a poll showing Dixon at 40, Ophel at 26, Carol at 20. Uh, election night comes. We win 38, 35, 26. One of the greatest upsets in the history of, of politics in this country. And, uh, and I, you know... Did I expect her to win? Uh, no, I didn't. But what happened was that spot resonated with people, but it wouldn't have worked unless these two guys were beating each other up to the tune of several million dollars. And just as a, a sidebar, the day after the election, you know, we win. She's the hottest person in the country. You have a press conference, right? Normally you have a press conference. Who shows up at the press conference? David Axelrod, who claims, says this, says, she wouldn't have won if I didn't have Al Holfeld in the race. And I said, okay, David, here's the deal. Give me the money you made off of Hofeld, and I'll give you the credit for this race. What do you say? <laughs> I'm guessing he didn't take you up on that. No, he didn't. <laughs> but, but if you read his book, which I haven't, but I did read excerpts, he takes credit for Carol Mosley Braun winning, winning the race. So this guy has been in Democratic politics in Ohio for a really, really long time. What does he think of the party right now? So for pretty much my entire professional life, it's been pretty lean times for Democrats in Ohio. And it's hard to tell. I mean, I guess you never know um, what the future is going to hold. But Jerry remembers kind of times of plenty where, you know, he was very close with, as you've heard, Dick Celeste, who was elected twice. I mean, he... Um, saw what it was like where Ohioans were electing Reagan and Celeste on the same ticket pretty much. And so, um, but on that note, Jerry's also uh, someone who's a pretty, I guess, prominent example of somebody within the Democratic Party who's critical of the direction the party's gone. Yeah, no question. I, I think he's got some, well, he's, you know, he's close with one of our past guests, P.G. Sittenfeld. 
and was very critical of the way the party kind of squeezed out Sittenfeld from the 2016 Senate race. Yeah, and it's it's sort of ironic, and you know you'll hear this, but that Jerry Austin, like who might be the old guy in the Democratic Party now, is also kind of somebody who's trying to champion young voices and, and kind of being more. Uh, you know, progressive in that regard. Is he woke? Uh, I mean, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I guess as woke as it gets for, you know, old political consultants or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Can we define just for, for my perspective, what woke means? Because I keep hearing the kids say it. Politically aware of what, what needs to happen. You know, I think woke. he's been woke for like 50 years yeah, well i mean you know <laughs> he the, is straight well, up well, awake well well as, as it relates to the democratic party because it's like all the things that you know he said back in 2016 now all of a sudden the democratic party's like oh yeah maybe you should listen to that and you know for right now let's get back to the interview with jerry austin so i asked you about the ads because democrats you know you're an avowed democrat they're generally called weak nowadays. You know, I don't know what it is over the past you know, decade or something like that. Do you think that's true, though, that Democrats have been weakened in recent years or? Well, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. And, but, but when you say Democrats, it's a, you know, it's a, that's a big, a big word to, 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 to cover, you know, uh, a segment of society. I, 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 I'll answer it a different way. Um, I think that one of the problems is that there aren't, as many people around that come out of what people like me and a David Axelrod and other people of my generation came out of, meaning that we got involved in politics to protest what was going on. Nobody ever thought that we'd have a career doing this. Um, I didn't realize that my, my, my affliction growing up, which wasn't diagnosed, which is ADD, was a plus in politics. I mean, you think in 30 and 60 second intervals, you know, you can be successful in politics where maybe in other parts of life you can't be. But... What's happened is that you have a whole new generation of consultants right now who come out of college knowing how to work the Internet. They've never been in the campaign in their life. They've never been in the campaign to protest anything that was going on. Uh, and they walk in and, 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 and they don't have any real allegiance to those candidates. Yeah, they're for them against the person of the other party, but they, they don't have any experience with them. They haven't grown up in this. They don't have any anywhere there. And... And they don't have that killer instinct. Uh, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean, you need to understand what the response of court is. And I still believe that, that, that you learn more from going on Fleet Avenue to a working class bar or, the, or a bar in Parma and talking to people than you do with focus groups uh, these days. But I'm just old fashioned in that way. And, and maybe that's just a attributable to, to be someone, you know, that, that, that's uh, anachronism, but I think that, that's part of it. Yeah, I was struck that your first Democratic National Convention was in Chicago with the police riot and the days of rage and all of that stuff. So I guess, you know, it's like a, it's a little different, I guess, back then, right? Well, but, but you know, the it, it all becomes part of, a, of your fabric and, and, and who, you want, who you are. But if you don't have those kinds of experiences, then you can't expect these young people today, you know, there aren't the same experiences. Now, I point out, though, that um, I'm hopeful um, and I've been waiting for young people to get involved, that something moves them. Well, this gun issue seems to have been, you know, what, what's done it. And, you know, why, why uh, on the, the, the Partland thing has done this? And I think it's because of those kids at Partland, because they, you know, they didn't just become, you know, bright and articulate and, and, and the ability to organize in, in a short period of time. There's something there that they probably got from their parents because their parents are very involved. Uh, and 
So I'm, I'm hoping that the, that the young people with this issue of the guns allows them to do for their generation what, what the war in Vietnam did for my generation. I was going to say, it's kind of hard to attack those students, too. I mean, you know, normally when you see an issue like that come up, it's you, even the Sandy Hook yeah, parents, It didn't you know, stop Marco attacked. Rubio from calling American. He also got kind of blasted for it, you know. I mean, it does seem like they're a, a sort of sympathetic group, and they're not actually politicized yet because they're in high school. I mean, I think they'll probably will be as it moves along, but um, do you see the similarities between, you know, you mentioned Kent State earlier. I know Kent State wasn't, you know, people sided with the National Guard on Kent State for a while afterward. I mean, is there a, is that the main difference between like a Kent State and a Parkland is they're sympathetic? Well, I you know, I think what's, what's happened here is that um, they've awakened a sleeping giant, and that sleeping giant were young people around the country who, not, who, ne- who did not necessarily have, you know, a part of an incident happened to them personally, but of watching people of their same ilk that this is happening, I mean, the other part of this that's, that's important is, and I don't know if you guys are parents, but, you know, for those parents listening to this, imagine your kid goes to school like they do on a normal day, and you get a phone call saying there's a shooter at the school, and there are 15 people have been killed, and you don't know whether your kid is alive or not, and you're texting and the kid's not answering. And, and so parents, you know, who haven't experienced this, can empathize with what's gone on with these parents who've lost their kid. Um, and, you know, in addition that these kids that have been active in Portland are 15, 16, and 17, where well, the 17-year-olds will be voting in, in 18, and those 15 and 16-year-olds will be voting in 20. Uh, and so they are potentially the largest, you know, part of the coming electorate. Um, there are more millennials that could potentially vote in, in, in 18 and 20 uh, than any other part of the population, but it always has been in our history some event, something that that motivates. And if you watch these kids, not just the ones from Portland, but I mean here here in Cuyahoga County, Westlake High School, a, a a Republican area, goes out. In in Columbus, Upper Arlington High School goes out. I mean, uh, I saw something uh, yesterday that said that twenty four percent of high school students plan on participating some way or another tomorrow in whether a march in Washington or march locally. Uh, so this is this is something that, that I don't think is going away. So actually a 1994 article that I pulled from the Plain Dealer archives, you're quoted in it, but it starts like this. Don't eulogize the Ohio Democratic Party, say party leaders and political analysts. It will rise like a phoenix from the ashes. Last Tuesday's scorched earth sweep by Republicans giving them an iron grip on the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of the state, has left Democrats sifting through the wreckage and dreaming of ways to rebuild. Uh, that sounds like a similar case to today. Do you, would you agree with that? Well, the, 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 the point is that what we learn you know, from history is that history can repeat itself, and, and many times it doesn't. Um, and you, I grew up in politics— not basically depending upon a party. Um, when Dick Celeste was a, was running for state rep, I mean, he went down to see the county chairman at the time. I mean, here's this guy who's a Rhodes Scholar, Yale graduate, you know, going to run for state rep. You think that they'd embrace him, and and uh, and just the opposite happened. They told him, "Hey, kid, get in line. You know, it's not your turn." Well, every 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 time that that you know I've been involved. In campaigns where people said it's not your turn, 
you know, we've taken on the establishment and said, no, there's no turn here. It's, it's a timing. And so I think what's happened is that the Ohio Democratic Party uh, is only as strong uh, as their elected officials. And when you have five members of the state Senate and, you know, 33 members of the, of the state House, um, you're not very strong. You need a governor. Uh, governors make a difference. I mean, Dick Celeste was governor for eight years and with the Republican president. He never had a Democratic president when he was governor. He got things done. Um, so governors are important. The 2018 election is important for governors in this state and in Michigan and in Illinois and Wisconsin, et cetera, all the Republicans. And, and so the people that are running right now, you know, for governor on the Democratic side, um, you know, there's, there's one person who's considered to be the favorite, which is Richard Cordray, uh, and he probably is. But my experience is that, uh, you know, being the favorite doesn't always work to your benefit. In 1982, Bill Brown, the attorney general, uh, was endorsed by, I think, almost 70 of the 88 county chairmen. He didn't win. Um, and, and so, you know, whatever, you know, uh, uh, sort of common knowledge is, is not always, is always correct. So I, I think you have campaigns for a reason. Uh, and uh, we'll see what happens in this campaign. But I think the state party uh, only means something when there's a governor. Um, other than that, uh, you know, they, they, they don't really have much influence. So another quote from 2002 regarding the Democrats in statewide office, you said, uh, for years we had no issues, but we had candidates, and now we have issues, but no candidates. Do you think that Democrats are in a position to be able to take advantage of the political opportunity they might have this year, or do you feel that they may have fumbled that opportunity? Are you talking about uh, in general, or are you talking about Ohio specifically? Ohio specifically. Well, yeah, I think there's a great opportunity here. Uh, just, just, you know, for a little uh, historical perspective. Let me just uh, talk about the Democrats in my lifetime who have become governor, okay? 1958, a uh, mayor of Toledo named Mike DeSalle got elected governor. The issue at the time was right to work. Uh, the Republicans put right to work on the ballot. It was defeated overwhelmingly, and Mike, De Mike DeSalle won the governorship because of that. Um, the only... Um, Republican survivor was a guy named Ted Brown, the Secretary of State. Mike DeSalle got beat four years later by Jim Rhodes. 1970 came, Jim Rhodes couldn't run again. There was a scandal, and it was called the Crofton Scandal. And Jack Gilligan got, got elected because of that scandal. Four years later, he got beat. Dick Celeste won in 1982, no scandal. And he got, and he got reelected and served for two terms, the only Democrat who ever got elected to two terms. Ted Strickland runs in 2006, scandal, Noe scandal, and wins. Gets beat four years later. Well, is there a pattern here? So in, if you're looking at 2016, 18, is there a scandal? Yeah, there's a scandal. The scandal is, is ECOT, is the amount of money that, that the Republicans have spent on ECOT for a total, complete, unadulterated disaster, and it's up to the Democrats to basically use that issue and the fact that Republicans have been in charge for the last eight years um, to basically do what's happened in the past, um, which is the Democrats have a chance to win.
So we've talked a lot about in this show about just the state of the Ohio Democratic Party and what they need to do to bounce back. Um, do, do you think that they've ever really bounced back from the time that you're talking about in the 80s? I mean, Strickland had a term in you know the late 2000s, but obviously they couldn't hold the seat. Now we're here in 2018 again, where I feel like we're still having this conversation. Um, do you think that the Democratic Party's sort of continuous, miserable state that we see, do you think that's the new normal? Or do you think that, you know, that things might kind of revert back to the norm? Well, you know, the, 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 each election is different. So, you know, whatever, whatever the past is, is the past, but you have an opportunity in 2018 because there's no incumbent running for re-election. Um, actually, some of them are playing musical chairs, uh, and you have an opportunity to win the governorship because it's up. Um, and so, so, so we'll see, uh, you know, in terms of what the new normal is. But the, the important thing here is that, what are we, March 23rd? We're talking right now. Is Donald Trump still going to be president in November? And if he is, you know, is, what are his numbers going to be? Is that going to have any effect on, on the election between whoever the Democrat and the Republican are? I think yes. And so one of the things you find out in politics is as much polling as you do, as much focus groups as you do, as much gut-wrenching as you do, there's an, an element involved in, in politics that you can't do anything about. It actually, it's, it's involved in life. It's called luck. Sometimes it's good luck and sometimes it's bad luck. Um, so the, the question is, come November, uh, the Democrats have a better chance of winning because Trump is still at 30 or 35 percent positive rating. Um, do they have a candidate that basically can energize the populace? What else is going on in terms of issues between now and then that's going to affect this election? Uh, I don't know what they are, but I can tell you that they're going to be there. Um, and uh, do the young people who are going to march tomorrow actually register to vote and come out to vote uh, for whichever candidate that, 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 they, that they want to support? And is the gun issue the issue that decides this, this election? Um, I mean, these are all, all questions to be answered, and, you know, let's meet again after the November election and see if, you know, if any of this came, came true. But the, the beauty of, of campaigns is how much we know and how much we don't know. Uh, yeah, we actually ha- kind of have that conversation a lot recently because one of the congressional districts in Ohio that seems like it might be in play is the 16th district because it's an open seat. And if you look at it compositionally, it has some similarities to uh, the seat in Pennsylvania that Connor Lamb won. But then we're kind of struck that maybe um, the slate of candidates that have run as Democrats there, none of them really have any political experience. And so I guess sometimes it's hard to see those opportunities far enough in advance that you need to. Well, in that, in that, in that race on the Republican side... You know, except for Christina Hagan, who's an elected official, and nobody else on that side. I mean, Gonzalez has never run for office before. Uh, and on the Democratic side, yeah, people have never run for office. But, um, you know, they have elections for a reason. You know, people, people win that aren't supposed to win and lose that aren't supposed to lose. I mean, I, I've had, you know, two elections in my career which, you know, uh, to fight all odds. One was Carol Mosley Brown, and the other was Paul Wellstone. Um, I mean, nobody thought Paul Wellstone, five foot six, you know, guy running around, um, looked more like Groucho Marx or Harpo Marx than anything else, and, and beat a two term incumbent, being out, spent $7 million or $700,000. And that's again because of luck. To me, what happened in that race was that the, the, the Thursday before the election, both papers in the Twin Cities had Boschwitz up, I think, by, by six points. 
And and on that Thursday that the, the, the poll came out, Boschwitz sends a letter to Jews in Minnesota. It was one of the first elections ever in Minnesota, maybe the only election, where two Jews were running against each other in the U.S. Senate with a population in Minnesota, of Jewish population of 1%. Boschwitz sends a letter out to Jews saying that Wellstone's not a real Jew because he's married to a Gentile woman. It became the number one issue for the last five days of the election. And Boschwitz's own rabbi came out and condemned him. So here came an issue which no polling would ever show, and Wellstone winds up winning by just under two points because of that, and, and, and did nothing you know, to cause it and, 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 and won an election. So you, know, you never know uh, how these things happen, but usually when there's a great upset, you know, something happens that nobody could ever plan. So I think it's one of the underrated storylines politically in Ohio in 2016 was the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate, where you had a young Cincinnati councilman, P.G. Sittenfeld, trying to challenge uh, Ted Strickland, the former governor. And uh, I thought it was kind of ironic that you were one of the voices kind of being an older guy in the party championing, you know, the party needs to do more to encourage a young guy like P.G. Sittenfeld to have a platform and to get involved. So with that 2016 race, uh, Rob Portman, the Republican incumbent, ends up beating Strickland, who crushes Sittenfeld, you know, in the primary. Portman beats Strickland by 21 points. Do you think the party learned a lesson from that? Um, you know, or what is the takeaway from how that transpired yeah, they didn't for you? Learn, they didn't learn a lesson from that because they, 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 their whole purpose in that primary by endorsing Strickland was to say this is, and this is our strongest candidate, as opposed to that Sittenfeld, all he wanted was a level playing field. I mean, Strickland still would have won that primary against Sittenfeld if they did party that endorsed. I think that, you know, that, that he won it by a bigger margin because the party endorsed. But they, they showed a total lack of understanding that here is a young, bright guy that they ought to be nurturing. Uh, he ought to be encouraged to run, even though Strickland may have, may have won that primary uh, uh, other than that. But they didn't understand that if Strickland would have won, if he would have won, he would have been the oldest person ever to be elected to the U.S. Senate in the history of the United States for his first term. It would have been 75 or 76. As opposed to looking at this bright young guy and saying, this is the future and we ought to be encouraging this guy. And, you know, the, the, the problem uh, with that race was that we gave Rob Portman an easy walk to victory. He won by 20 points. Um, and he won for a lot of reasons. Besides the, the fact that that Strickland had nothing to say, uh, except you know I've been a, I'm a former governor and yeah I won an election that anybody could have won and I lost an election that nobody should have lost and now I'm running for the U.S. Senate so like it's you know uh, this is part of what should be uh, you know part of politics in this country where someone like me should be you know encouraged to run and and a young person like Sittenfeld should not be. And Sittenfeld, by the way, uh, is one of those people you meet in life that you don't know what he's going to be when he grows up, but he's going to be something. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I think he's now 33. Uh, I got shoes older than that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, he's the future. You want to look at the future, look at P.G. Sittenfeld. Yeah, it sounds like you see some parallels with uh, your experience with Dick Celeste. Absolutely. And what happened was that I get a call from you know, this guy. Uh, what's your name? P.G. Sittenfeld, who are you? I'm a Cincinnati councilman. Okay, what do you want? I want to meet you. Why? Well, you've been around a long time, and you know I'm 
somebody just wants to meet people that, you know, been involved in politics. And he came, and uh, I was impressed by him. And uh, he asked me to be helpful in his campaign, and I, and I was, and uh, glad I did. And he just led the ticket in Cincinnati, you know, uh, city council in this past election. And, I mean, he's 33, uh, you know. Uh, what's he going to be when he grows up? He's going to be something. And and uh, he's got that combination. He's very bright, uh, articulate. I mean, you like him. I mean, you've, you've met the guy. I mean, he's a, he's a likable young man, and he's got a wife that's, you know, basically studying to be uh, an oncologist. Uh, I mean, he's the real deal, and, and he's the future. And uh, I I got up at a book signing a couple of weeks ago, and I, and I said, except for my vote for Sherrod Brown, 2018, I'm not voting for anybody over 60 again. Um, it's, it's time for young people. And my age, somebody young's in their 50s. Uh, you know, so it's time for young people to start, you know, taking leadership in this country. That's why I, I am, you know, think that Nancy Pelosi ought to step aside. Uh, I don't have any problems with Nancy Pelosi in terms of what she's done and how she's helped Democrats. But, you know, she's the face of the party. And I think one of the reasons this Connor Lamb won is because he basically disassociated himself from her to begin with, took away all these spots they would have run uh, saying that he's, you know, a Nancy Pelosi type of guy. And um, and that 16th district, by the way, um, you know, I think has a candidate in there. It's a Connell Lamb kind of candidate. Um, as Grant uh, uh, guy, uh, uh, Grant's, uh, you know, a Marine, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, who knows? Does the Democratic Party have a problem um, recruiting youth to run, though? I mean, you see, like, PG was—you mentioned it back when Dick Celeste was running that the party basically said, hey, it's not your turn yet, it's not your turn yet. And, you know, they kind of did that with PG as well. I mean, does that deter younger people from running? I mean, they get the sense, it's not my turn, and the party hasn't recruited or anything well, like the that? Well, one, the ones that are good will say, screw you, uh, I'm running. Uh, you know, I'm, I came to you— to ask for your support, uh, you know, because that's something I should be doing. But if, just because you don't, I'm not signing any oath here saying I'm, you know, I'm not supporting them. I'm not running. Uh, no, I, I think, you know, the history of youth in this country and around the world is basically saying screw you to the powers that be. I mean, if, we, if, if they weren't saying screw you, you know, back in 1776, we'd be singing God save the Queen instead of the Star Spangled Banner. What do you think of the candidates this year for governor? Well, I I know all of these these folks. Some I know better than others. I mean, and uh, if you take Dennis Kucinich, Bill O'Neill, and Rich Cordray, they have been running for office for 120 years. Think about that. Den- Dennis first got elected in 1969. Bill O'Neill first ran in 74. Uh, Cordray sometime in the 80s. And you combine them all, it's 120 years. Um, now, some people would say, well, that's the experience we need. And other people would say, well, wait a second, you know, enough's enough. Now, here you got a guy like Joe Schiavone, um, uh, who is young, um, who's, you know, basically serving his second term uh, as a uh, state senator. But he also is the only one, I believe, that has young children. Well, I mean, the other ones may have grandchildren. And so, you know, he's, he should be the young person's candidate. Problem is that the powers that be in this state are all seem to be supporting Cordray. Now, do I see a similarity between 1982 when the powers that be supported Bill uh, uh, Brown against Dick Celeste? 
Mm, not so much because Dick Celeste had already been known. He'd run statewide. He'd been, he'd been a lieutenant governor. Joe Schiavone that doesn't have that experience. But, you know, I, I think the odds-on favorite's going to be Cordray, and the odds-on on the Republican side is going to be DeWine. And we're going to have a rematch of 2010 when they both ran for attorney general. Um, and, I, and I think that the, 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 the thing about the, that race is that Mike DeWine's been around for an awful long time. I think when before Eustead joined him on the ticket, Eustead said the first time Mike DeWine ever ran, that Eustead was eight years old. Um, and so it's, you know, the thing about politics is that you have, a, you have a campaign for a reason, you have election day for a reason, and I've always run campaigns from election day backwards. I mean, I want to peak on one day, it's election day. I didn't care about peaking two weeks before. Uh, and so we'll see what happens here. But, you know, right now the odds-on favorite would be, would be Cordray versus DeWine. Uh, and, you know, if you, if, if you look at DeWine, I know you've interviewed him. Um, he's 71. I mean, I'm 73. He looks worse than I do, doesn't he? Uh, I mean, and you know, he's not he, sitting here, so I guess we have to agree with you. So. Well, you know, he looks he look he looks much older than, than he is, but that that's somebody older than him looking at this and and, and maybe wishful thinking. But you know, the, the I think this, you know, that eighteen will whether we have candidates, you know, at the top of the ticket that are young or not. I think the young people have a chance to decide this election, uh, and if that's the case, you know, Cordray is at least 15 years younger than DeWine, uh, and uh, it could be a big Democratic year. So one of the questions we've been trying to ask all the guests on the show, you know, the name of the show is Ohio Matters, and we're trying to explore if, you know, does Ohio still matter? Does it still hold the same influence? Does Ohio still matter um, as much as it did, and will it matter as much as it does in the future? Yeah, yes, it still matters until it doesn't. And, And what I mean by that was that Going into the 2016 election, uh, as Ohio goes, so goes the nation. Uh, well, that's actually was true. Uh, I mean, Ohio went for Trump, uh, and the nation went for Trump, at least the Electoral College. Um, but what we missed in, in 16 was that it became fairly evident to me and a lot of other people that Trump was going to win Ohio. Um, but he won Ohio by eight points. When Obama won Ohio twice, when Clinton won Ohio twice— when, when Bush won Ohio twice, they won by like three or four points. So this was sort of a landslide. What we, what we missed was, if that's happening in Ohio, what's going on in Pennsylvania? What's going on in Michigan? States that Trump both won. So Ohio you know, still, still matters. Uh, even though Trump won it, won it easily, it did, it did you know, suggest what was happening in other states um, was going to emulate what was going on in Ohio. But every election is different. Um, you know, we, we normally have in this country um, the mark propensity to elect the president for two terms, but not to elect the same party for a third term. Um, so Trump would be on paper, if he's around, the, the favorite to win because he's the incumbent. But it, it isn't you know, the same old, same old uh, anymore because, um, you know, Trump was, was the winner of the Electoral College without the popular vote. Uh, I, can't, I tell my class at the University of Akron uh, in 16, uh, the, the, the polls were correct. The national polls were correct. I mean, Hillary Clinton won. But we don't, you know, elect a president by the national polls. We elected by, by state. I'll tell you one, one aside here. 
which you won't find in, in, in any of your archival notes. Um, I, I've been traveling around the world uh, recently. I have a, a class that um, I conduct at the University of Akron on Tuesdays. It's called the Global Classroom. And I have on the same screen, well, we're in Akron, University of Pretoria in South Africa, University of Le Mans in France, and FAPE University in Brazil. We have four universities and four continents all taking a class on politics at the exact same time. And it wouldn't surprise you to know that the people in these other countries know more about us than we know about them. But when I went out to recruit these countries, I was asked to guest lecture in each of, the, uh, of these uh, uh, universities, and they all have a class uh, on U.S. politics. And so I'm in you know, the, these classes, and first question is always the same first question. How can the same country elect Barack Obama and Donald Trump? And my response was, well, that's easy, because if you look at the history of our country, we usually elect uh, a person from a different party after two terms of one party. So a Republican winning after Obama was not unusual. This Republican, yes. Okay. Second question. Are you the only democracy in the world where the person who gets the most votes doesn't win? I said, yeah, that's probably true. Next question. Why did Donald Trump win? So my response was, okay, let me ask you a question. How many parties do we have in the United States? Two. Wrong. So the professor says, excuse me, uh, you have more than two parties? I said, yes. So how many do you have? I said, six. Six. Name the six. Democrats, Republicans, let's say libertarians, green, all that. Let's put them into a third party, okay? Well, what are the other three? Idiots, imbeciles, and morons. What do you mean by that? I said, well, if you watch the campaign, an event happened near the end of the campaign. It was called the Entertainment Tonight audio tape. How many of you remember that? Everybody raised their hand. What do you remember best? And a kid sheepishly raised his hand and said, grab the pussy, grab the pussy. I said, correct. Now, when that event happened, Trump had a rally like within 24 hours. I mean, it was planned. And when you do a rally, you know, you put people behind the podium to, to make a statement, right? So Trump usually had all these white people and some black person they bought to, to stand there. And in this first rally after that Entertainment Tonight tape came out, there were three women there. And the reason you notice them is because they all seem to be wearing the same sort of T-shirt. The camera closes in, and they have a T-shirt with an arrow. And they go to the bottom of the arrow, and across the bottom it says, Pussy. I said, what do you want me to call those people? Idiots, imbeciles, and morons. They will vote for Trump no matter what. If Trump went on TV and said that this red tie he's wearing is green, they'd say it was green. I said, so these people came out of the woodwork. They've always been there in politics. Always been there. And, and so whatever Trump does now, he's playing to that base. He's not playing to the, to the people who didn't vote for him. Because the people, these people will vote for him no, no, no matter what. And we have that ingredient as part of our populace, which has always been there, but now they're emboldened because the guy they voted for, they probably didn't even expect him to win, is president. They don't care about Stormy Daniels. They don't care about any of this stuff as long as, as he does what they think is right. And so, you know, this is where we are in, in, in the state of the art of politics in this country. And the question is, will 2018 basically say, wait a second, we may have to deal with this guy for the next two years, but we could make some, you know, Correct some of, the, of what we did in 2016 and 18.
Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. That's it? That's it. Just getting warmed up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.